Galatians in chapter 3 this morning. Our text will be somewhat lengthy, verse 15 down through verse 29, the end of chapter 3. We welcome you. It is a delight to be together, a privilege that God has given to us. Nothing compares to this promise. We're actually going to um, be discussing, looking at this promise from Scripture of all that God has in store as we keep our eyes fixed on Him. Special mention, congratulations to those young men who are up here who are graduating. Um, By all means, make sure that you set out from this very moment that your number one goal is not to earn and gain as much money as you can. Sadly, that is the focus of so many people. You will stand, if you are a believer, before the Lord, and He does not care how much money you have earned to hold and to hoard yourself. He cares about you impacting the lives of other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything will be measured, young men, on that. Remember that. <clears throat> Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help as we look at a neat text this morning. Father, I am so grateful for your word that has been given to us. Father, I am so thankful that you are here with, with us this morning, that you are the one, Lord, who opens our eyes, softens our hearts. You allow, Lord, the seed of, of your word to, to land on soil that, Lord willing, as we leave your house, already begins to germinate, to produce fruit. Father, we are so grateful for the promise that has been given, the promise from old, and a promise that still still touches and and affects and impacts this day. It impacts the way that we walk. It impacts the way that we talk. I just pray, Lord, that we would understand the weight, the gravity of the responsibility that now rests on our shoulders, especially since since these, these ones this morning, myself included, will hear the truth of the gospel. Father, I do pray for this community. I thank you so much for the opportunity yesterday to just greet and meet so many. But, Father, as as we met many, we are once again reminded how lost, how confused, um, uh, how how desperate so many are apart from, from your love and apart from your grace. And, God, help us to be a church that is on fire for you. We lift up your name and we praise your name for a neat answer to prayer that we as a body were praying this past week, this past Monday night, that allowed the zoning ordinance to, to go through. Father, just, just one more step. We, we, will, we will follow you as you open doors. And Father, we praise your name for, for orchestrating every tiny little detail. We just pray, Lord, as we stay focused on the vision that you have given to us that it would be about you, all about you. We ask, Lord, that you bless this time as as we learn. Guard my words very carefully, my mouth, my lips, that I would not say one word that would, would, would ever be anything less than glorifying to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, it's somewhat of a lengthy text. We'll pick it up in verse 15, Galatians chapter 3. As we're reading, I want you to pay specific attention. I want you to look for these words. Any reference to the word promise? Okay, you're looking for the word promise? 
used repeatedly, looking for any reference or inference to the law, the Old Testament law that we've been dialoguing about, the Judaizers who are in love with this Old Testament law. And also you're looking for the repeated use of the word, of the man, of God, Christ, Jesus Christ. Look to see how many times these words surface in our text. They're having a little bit of a hard time understanding the lesson. So Paul says this. He says, let me, let me give you an example. Let me give you an illustration. He begins. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is male There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's that word again. Repeat it. Let me begin by refreshing and reminding you the story many of you are familiar with. There are many, many variations of a fairy tale that is based loosely upon what they believe to be the life of a young German princess who was born in 1729. Her name is Maria Sophia Margaretha Katharina von Arthel. I love the name. Or as we have come to know her and love her as Snow White. Here's the basic gist of the story. Snow White's mother dies while giving birth to her. And her father, the king, remarries a woman that we now know as 
the wicked stepmother. This new stepmother had a magic mirror that she asked a question to every single morning. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? The mirror always replied, my queen, you are the fairest of them all. The queen was always pleased with this because she knew that the magic mirror never lies. But when Snow White continued to grow, she became more and more beautiful each day. One day, the stepmother asked the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror responded, my queen, You are the fairest here, so true, but Snow White is a thousand times more beautiful than you. Let me just tell you this. The whole story kind of goes south from there. But you add in seven dwarfs, a poison apple, a prince, and a kiss, and somehow, I don't know how, Everybody lives happily ever after. My personal summary of the story. Okay, bottom line, why this? Bottom line is this. First of all, let me tell you this. Mirrors are not magic. Okay, remember that. Here's the second lesson. Mirrors never talk. Okay? And here's the third very important one. Mirrors... Do not lie. Okay? Remember that. So now we transition. What in the world does Snow White have to do with the book of Galatians? Hear me very clearly. Nothing. However, however, it has a lot to do with the subject that the author of Galatians makes reference to repeatedly in our text today. And what? That is the law. What is the law? We learned about this a couple weeks ago. Refresh your memory. Law is what this instruction that was given by God on Sinai to Moses, 800 laws, rules, and regulations that had to be obeyed precisely and exactly if there were going to be atonement made for their sins. There were sanitary laws and dietary laws and civil laws and moral laws and laws of worship and sacrifice. Remember this, the law was given not as an elevator to lift us up. Okay, that is not the purpose. The law never makes us holy. The law is what is a mirror that shows to us every single one of our blemishes. The mirror actually reveals to us. Mirrors don't lie. The mirror refers what? It shows us our problems. It shows us how far off we are from the mark. It shows us our sins. And tragically, people have been literally lied to by Satan. Satan, the father of lies, he loves to lies, and people believe those lies. And people, what, have twisted the truth. Satan would love for people to try and actually become holy through the very law that God has revealed to us and given to us, what, to prove the fact that we are sinners. You follow me? You tracking with me so far? The law was given to bring about 
an awakened sense of our shortcoming. It convicts us. It is unpleasant to us. It brings to us, in all honesty, a sense of guilt before God. I just do not, I cannot measure up. And it reminds people ultimately of our need of a Savior. It reminds people of our need for one. Praise God, the, the purpose of the law was only temporary. It had, it had an expiration date until Jesus Christ came. The book of Galatians reminds us, the book of Galatians actually refreshes us. It redirects our thinking and our living so it is focused entirely on, on the all-sufficient, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're introduced to the purpose of the law that it held in the past, but the place that the law still holds in the present. It's necessary, although it's not as effective, it's necessary. What, what does this have to do with today? Let's, let's kind of think about this setting here for a moment. What, what is happening here? Why is Paul writing this letter to the five churches spread throughout Galatia who are falling for a false lie, a false gospel, of combining what? The law, doing good things and good works, alongside of grace and faith for salvation. It's a heresy that it seeped into the church, the teaching of the Jewish leaders, the, the Judaizers, and we know that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. A theme that comes from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Which means what? You can't buy salvation. I don't care how many times you've been to church. I don't care how many times you've read the Bible. I don't care how many verses you've memorized. I don't care about the fact that you've been baptized or not. None of that's going to get you to heaven. Yes, you're supposed to be tithing. That's what Christians do. Yes, you're supposed to be attending Sunday school. That's what Christians do. And going on mission trips, that's what we do. But that doesn't get you to heaven. Chapters 3 and chapters 4 speak of, of what? This basic doctrine that we've been talking about of divine redemption. Divine, speaking of godly redemption, godly redeeming, godly rescuing, which means there's nothing. Not, it doesn't matter about your ERA. It doesn't matter how great you can throw. It doesn't matter about your GPA, how smart you are. Doesn't matter about your, your IRA, how much money you've got tucked away. Doesn't matter about your nice teeth and your clean hair. There's nothing that you can do. So we ask this question. If salvation today does not involve the law, then, then why was it given in the first place? If, if what? If the law has been set aside, why is it that the law demands so much attention? Why is it that the law of Moses is, is referenced here? That Paul quotes from the law six different times in this chapter alone. Think about what's happening. As Paul is writing, he has the listening ear. He's writing to this church, the churches at Galatia. He has the listening ear of the Judaizers. Paul repeatedly refers to the law, and so they think, what? They're like, wow, we got this guy backed into a corner. He's really telling us how important the law actually is. When in reality, understand who Paul, Paul is what? He is trained as a, as a Jewish Pharisee, as a rabbi. He is fully equipped to argue his case and to handle this situation. This is not like some novice spouting off on something that they have nothing any knowledge about. You ever listen to people who are trying to talk about something 
Imagine me trying to correct one of the piano players, Holly or, or, or Sue on the piano. You know that G flat? Yeah. It's got to be a little bit more flat next time, huh? I know nothing. It's got big white keys, little black keys, and it's got a break and a gas down there. That's all I know. Why would I ever comment on something I have no knowledge about? It's not like that. Paul is very equipped. He is very knowledgeable. He has clear lessons. And he wants them to understand the relationship that exists between the Old Testament law and what is referred to as, and we hear repeatedly in our text, the promise. The promise. I don't know about you, but I love the word promise. Well, my wife said, I promise I will never, ever leave you. I will never stop loving you. There's something about that word that's so amazing. This word promise is mentioned eight times. I don't know if you picked up on that, if you counted them or not. Eight times in this section alone. Whenever you're reading scripture, anything that is repeated is there for emphasis. Okay, let's set it up here a little bit. Last I checked, this is 2014, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Doing a little thinking today. We go back almost 2,000 years. 55 A.D. is when the book of Galatians is written. 55, 56, somewhere in there. Okay? 2014, Paul's writing at, at 55 A.D. I want you to think about the fact that it was 1500 B.C. So about 1555 years prior to that is when the law was given to Moses and the Israelites. Okay? Think about that, 1555 B.C., we're going to go back another 430 years, okay, to the promise that was given. 430 years before Moses, before the writing of Galatians, before us. Why is this so significant? It is important because it goes all the way back to this promise that God gives to Abraham through Christ that in him... All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I want you to see it for yourself. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 15, verses... Actually, look at verse 1. Set the scene up. What did I say, Genesis 15? There is no Galatians 15. Genesis 15. I'm here. Some of you are following... It's concentrate on trying to get a drink of water. Well, it's concentrate on Galatians chapter 15. We're going to set it up. Kind of messed up. Genesis 15. After verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I... What will you give me for I continue childless? Down to verse 5. He brought him outside. He said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he excuse me, counted it to him as righteousness. Understand what happens here. We're going to look this morning at, 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 at the comparisons, at the difference between the law and the promise. Difference number one. The law cannot change the promise. 
The law cannot change the promise. The promise that is given that ultimately there is salvation through Christ. Same word, okay, that, that God gives to Abraham. There is, there is salvation by putting your trust in me. Number one, the law cannot change the promise. The Judaizers are saying that the giving of the law had somehow altered or had somehow changed the promise in some way. Paul says, no, it's not. Think of it like this. If two parties make an agreement, can a third party come along and change that agreement? If Pastor Nick and I make an agreement, Nick, I want you to meet me for lunch at this place at this time. Are you going to change that? It's impossible. Agreements made between two people, they're the only two people that can alter or change that promise. God made a, an agreement, a promise, or a covenant with Abraham. In reality, Abraham really didn't even make an agreement with God. Why? Because he's asleep when this is happening. When God made the promise in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham did not have to meet any specific conditions in order for his promise to be met. Therefore, it's what's referred to as a covenant of grace. So we go to back to Galatians, and in chapter 3, in verse 16, in this covenant of grace, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Note the word singular. If you have the New King James Version, it actually uses, which I appreciate this, and to his, instead of the word offspring, to his seed, and it's uppercase S. There's one. It's referring specifically to Christ. It continues on. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, understand this, that this covenant of promise, the covenant of grace, was made by God with Abraham through Christ. Therefore, there's only two parties who can make the changes, God the Father and God the Son. Moses can't alter the promise. The Judaizers can't alter the promise. You and I cannot alter the promise. Think of it like this. Can anything ever be added to alter the promise of God's grace? Can anything be, be added to alter the promise of grace? The answer is simple. No. You don't have the right to add to it. I don't have the right. No one does. The law cannot change the promise. Difference number two, the law is not better than the promise. There's no doubt the account... The giving of the law, if we were to take the time to go to Exodus chapter 19, it's a pretty impressive story. I don't know about you, but but we like these kind of stories. There is crashing thunder. There are brilliant flashes of lightning. There's people that are, are literally trembling in fear. Moses is shaking in his sandals. It is big. It is loud. It is dramatic. Especially in comparison to the promise that was given to Abraham. What was that like? It was a guy sleeping in the middle of the desert in a sleeping bag, sound asleep. That's it. Well, I don't know about you, but I would probably take the loud crashing, banging. There's something about, particularly with the Judaizers, the the Jewish high-ups. They love the impressive. They love the emotional. They love the external. They love the visible. 
but not so here. For any one of us, beat a drum and I'm there. It's just the way it is. That's the way that we think. Yet Paul actually points to the fact that the law is inferior. What was given with all of that splendor is inferior to the promise. Why? Number one, the law was temporary. It says in the first part of verse 19 of Galatians chapter 3, until the offspring should come. Which means what? There's a, there's a start date, there's a stop date to it. It's temporary. Another part that we know that the law is inferior is because the law required a mediator or, or a middleman. Someone has to be, what, was uh, a mediator was put in place and it was through the angels by an intermediary, it says in the latter part of verse 19. We won't take the time to read it, but back in Deuteronomy in chapter 33, Moses actually describes in a little bit more detail this theophany that took place of, of the appearance of, of Christ in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, it says this. Moses is describing what happens, what happened. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon us. Think about that. His arrival dawned upon us. He shone forth. He came from ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So what has happened here? The law is handed from God to the angels first, then to Moses, and then from Moses to the entire nation or to the people of Israel. At best, that's what? That's third-hand knowledge. It required Moses to be the middleman or the mediator in the whole promise. However, what's the difference to Abraham? It comes directly from God to Abraham. There's no middleman. There's no need for it. Finally, a covenant of grace was made between God and also you and I. But we say, wait a minute, isn't, isn't Christ our mediator between God and man? Well, who is Christ? Christ is God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, God is one. So we see the value of this promise as being so much more. The Judaizers impressed with the incidentals of the law, the splendor and the thunder and the glory, yet Paul wanted to look at the ingredients as being that which was essential. The promise is better. The promise is greater. I thought about you and I. How easy is it for us to kind of get off track about the incidentals? I appreciate the word of warning last week from Eric and Thane. Even as we're pursuing what a new building, it is so easy to just see that as, as distraction, as noise, apart from the importance. Even our gathering together right here, a worship service, it is so wonderful. It's still an incidental. It's still secondary. Mission trips, wonderful, necessary, important. That's not the primary The essential is what? Is the message of salvation. We are privileged to hold in our hands and in our hearts the gospel, the message of redemption. It must remain most important before anything and everything else. Don't get caught up with the loud and the crashing and the banging. Concentrate on the essential, not the incidental. 
Difference number three, the law is not contrary to the promise. We're racing here. Thomas, here, the law is not contrary. Thomas, here, the Judaizers, as they're, they're shouting in desperation now as Paul's presenting his case, and they're getting pummeled. Verse 21 asks the question, is the law then against the promises of God's? I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Doesn't it seem at times that God, he says one thing and, and he almost says it like almost as if God's contradicting himself? That does the right hand of God really not understand and know what the left hand of God is doing? We oftentimes feel like that. In our flesh, we kind of see through things dimly. What exactly is God doing? What does God seem to, to say one thing and yet do another? The Apostle Paul's response in, in the latter part of verse 21 Reveals his deep insight into the ways, the purposes of God. Is the law then against the promises of God? Paul says, God forbid. Absolutely not. The law does not contradict the promise of God's grace, but rather the law cooperates. They work together with the promise of God's grace. Again, what is the purpose of the law according to what we see in Romans chapter 3? It reveals the fact that we are all sinners. Every single one of us are sinners. And it reveals that. Back to the idea of what I said earlier about the idea of a mirror allows us what? To see something that there's a problem. How does James actually word this? Remember our study in James a year or two ago? It says in in chapter 1 that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving ourselves, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. How, how silly would it be for you to finish up a meal and you go to, to, to look in the mirror to make sure and you got, you got barbecue sauce and a little bit of coleslaw and you got pepper in your teeth and you're like, yep, it's all there and you walk away from it. Why would you even look in the mirror? That's just foolishness. It's being revealed. They don't lie. It reveals the fact that there's serious problems. Do something about it. But we understand ultimately that what? The law is, is, is nothing that can make us righteous. Law reveals our unrighteousness. So how are we made clean? How do we wash things? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. Oh, that's what David was talking about in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly. Create me a clean heart. Purge me. Oftentimes, if it were not for the law, which appropriately reveals our indiscretions, the law reveals our inadequacies and our insufficiencies. How would we see the need for Christ? Why would, we, why would we desire to be redeemed? Therefore, the law is not contrary. It cooperates with the promise. Fourthly and finally, we're, we're raising difference number four. The law cannot do what the promise can do. Again, I told you when we were reading, note how many times you're underlined. If you write in your Bibles, I encourage you to write in your Bibles. I know some people would say, don't do that. I would say, do that. Six times in those last couple of verses is a reference to Christ. Six different times with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the nation Israel had to what? They had to grow up. 
Just like you and I have to understand what. It's not, it's not about what, what you think you're, you need to be doing. They had to move from childhood to adulthood where this preparation period is over. No doubt a certain amount of glory appears in the law, but there is a far greater glory and splendor and wonder that appears in the work and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Bottom line is many people are still stuck on this idea of what we must do. And we measure things and we measure our own selves. We measure others. I need to do this. I need to behave. I need to say. I need to look. And, and, And it's just a trap. That's why it's repeatedly coming up. And we are to trust and we are to rest in what Christ has already done. And so there's this glorious sense of relief and release. He says, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about trying to be made what we cast our entire lives in total abandonment into him. God is good to His Word. And we see that all the way through. The Old Testament teaches the preparation for Christ. And the New Testament teaches the presentation of Christ. A lot of times as you're in dialogue with someone about the Bible, we have this this chasm that exists between the Old Testament and the New. Sadly, many many people would would concentrate on the New Testament and say, well, we can neglect the Old. because No, they work together. We see God's we see God's plan all the way through. So today we, we rest in that, we trust in that. I know that there's a lot when we say all the different references to trying to distinguish between grace and faith and works and law. But rest in the fact of what Christ has done. And when we understand that, we take that, and that is a message that offers hope. That is a message that brings an absolute sense of delight and wonder to people that are trying so desperately to be good people in order to get to heaven, when that's not the truth. Your job is to tell them the truth. That's what God's word is. That's what we offer. We need to be a church that is shouting from the rooftops the truth. God is good to his promise of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for what you've revealed to us over the, the, the ages. We thank you, Lord, to see how your word fits together. And we thank you, Lord, that there's a promise that has been made and a promise that is kept. And help every person here to trust that promise and to tell others they can trust in the promise of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Just stand with us as we close, please. We're going to close with a song that uh, uh, Mrs. Heather.